Okay, good morning. Just in case anybody feels a little unsafe, I've got an eye on the front door, and we've got protection if somebody comes in the door. So I don't know if anybody else has got any, but Jim usually does. We're all facing this way, so just relax. If any of those goblins that marched in the street yesterday around America in the name of women's rights come through the front door, we'll put a quick end to it. Goblins. Creatures from hell. That's what most of that was. I'm thankful that the women of our church don't represent what we saw in the streets yesterday. Filth. Filth. God says that when it comes to godliness, uh, many things the Word says about qualities that should be found in the men. But what is of great price before God with the ladies, our sisters in Christ, is a meek and quiet spirit. Uh, that loves the Lord, and that's the opposite of what the world teaches. And so I'm just thankful for the women of this church who represent that and don't represent what the world says. You know, the world wants to make men into women and women into men. Everything's always backwards. Satan counterfeits what Christ does. Anti-Christ, anti doesn't mean just against, it means instead of instead of Christ, but His counterfeits end up being the opposite of what God intends, and yet men think. It's just backwards, upside down. Right is wrong, wrong is right, truth is falling in the streets, but all of these things were prophesied in the Scriptures. And unlike those who may be on our side of the political spectrum, when we have Christ, we're not hopeless. All these conspiracy theorists out there and right-wing people, they're hopeless, They see a hopeless situation uh, because they know not Christ. For us, it's not hopeless. We know the end of all these things. And right here in Revelation, we see the consummation when all of these things will be put down despite the devils and the demons and the deception and the rise of Antichrist and the persecution of Christians and even devils going forth to work miracles around the world. In spite of all those things, there's a consummation. And all of these things are done... Uh, and controlled by Him who sits above, who governs all of it, to the point that even the devils and the demons are just marionettes on strings. They only do what He allows. So let's open back up to Revelation 16, verse 14. Last Two weeks ago, we started in verse 12 with the sixth seal, and we got through the first half of the verse. Spoke about the great river Euphrates and its significance in human history and why this would the drying up of this river would be a judgment upon the world. Last week we took the last half of verse 12 and we got through verse 13, talked a little bit about the satanic trinity that we see here, and we got a little bit into verse 14. Today I'd like to get into 15 and possibly verse 16, but before we do, just a word... On verse 14, let's go back there for a minute. It says, we talked about the river drying up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And then John saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouths of the three members of the satanic trinity. Quite a difference from the picture that we see of Jesus in the Jordan River with the dove, the Holy Spirit coming down, and God speaking from heaven. Here we have a revolting picture of the satanic trinity. And these frogs, this Frog-like spirits are literally belched out of the mouths of these uh, this wicked triumvirate, and they go into all the earth. It says in verse 14, they are the spirits of devils working miracles. Paul said this would happen in abundance in the latter times. In 1 Timothy, he says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly 
And in the latter times, men will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. You know, two things he lists as examples are forbidding to marry, the same thing the Catholic Church does, and commanding to abstain from meats. So the Bible talks about celibacy and all this stuff that the Catholics cry for, the priesthood, and then the homosexual crowd, you know, parading as Christians say, well, I'm gay, God may be this way, but I'll just be celibate. Paul warned that those type of doctrines are doctrines of devils, abstaining from meat, people thinking they're righteous because they're vegetarians. Some of the most unhealthy looking people I've ever seen are vegetarians or vegans. I don't, I don't, I've never seen more unhealthy people than that. What were we talking about last night? Some of the most unhealthy people that have a lot of pets. A lot of pets. People that have a lot of pets, you know, I, you know, people 10, 12 cats, you know, and all of this, they end up looking unhealthy too. So it's funny what the world says is healthy. Looks, uh, looks unhealthy, but vegans and vegetarians, some of the most unhealthy and some of the most grumpy people I've ever met. Uh, but the Bible says those things are doctrines of devils that are used to deceive the world into a pseudo-righteousness. And that's what we see happening here. These are the spirits of devils, verse 14, working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So the rivers dried up to prepare the kings of the east, and then these evil spirits are belched forth to gather the kings of the whole world. There's a very plain truth here that needs to be emphasized. Devils work miracles. Devils perform miracles. We see this going all the way back to the book of Exodus when the priest and the the magicians of Pharaoh were able to duplicate some of the things that Moses did. And God allowed that because it put Israel in a position where they had to choose who was God. And that, for that reason, some of the plagues afflicted them. But when they as a people decided to follow God, that's when they were spared and God began to take them out. God's not a beggar. He's a great king that rules over the earth. And we've got to choose this day whom we will serve. Devils work miracles. They can heal. They can speak in tongues. They can raise the dead. They can cause people to see Mary crying, statues of Mary crying, the Fatima, you know, the Muslim Mary. It's all the same. They can cause people to see Bigfoot, UFOs. And God knows what else floating around. Beads, prayer flags, incense, rosaries, candles. Devils can do all this stuff. And it's meant to deceive, so it has an element of truth. It looks as if it could be true. Antichrist is raised up to deceive Israel, so they'll, they'll actually think he's the Messiah. He's not going to be a repulsive devil worshiper in a robe with his face painted white, all gothic and a pitchfork. No, no. He's going to deceive them into thinking he is who has been foretold in the Scriptures. But there's always a distinguishable difference. We talked about this when we looked at Revelation uh, 13, the beast that comes out of the sea, the Antichrist. We talked about the difference between God's miracles and Satan's miracles. And we looked at the plagues of Egypt. I'm not going to get into that much, but there's always a distinguishable difference between the works of the devil 
the miraculous works of the devil and the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit. There's a clear, distinguishable difference. And a lot of so-called charismatic-leaning Christians forget about this. They forget about this distinguishable difference. John 15, verse 26. Jesus is telling His disciples the promise of the Holy Spirit that would come came 50 days after Christ rose from the dead. He walked with them 40 days, left from the Mount of Olives, told them to wait for the promise of the Father in Jerusalem, and it came on the Feast of Pentecost, which was 10 days later, 50 days from the Feast of First Fruits. It says here in John 15, 26, When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of Me. That's the difference. The Spirit of God, in and through its miraculous works, testifies of the Messiah, of the Christ. He doesn't point to Himself. You know, all these folks talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit this, the Spirit that. And the, the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus, falls to the wayside. That's not the witness of the Holy Spirit. The witness of the Holy Spirit is not of Himself. It is of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And so when miracles and wonders don't give credence or don't give testimony of Christ, they're not of the Holy Spirit. It's very simple. And the fruit is always different. The fruit of uplifting Messiah, just like John said, I must decrease, He must increase. The fruit of God's miracles, of the Holy Spirit's witnesses, witnesses, I decrease, He increases. The fruit of devils is the opposite. We increase and He decreases. It's the opposite. The fruit is always different when it comes to devils working miracles and the Holy Spirit or God doing miracles. The fruit's always different. I said this last week. I've got these little trees in my front yard. This time of year, you can't tell what they are. They could be anything. But come summer... Several years ago, I thought I'd start a fruit orchard in my yard. It didn't go very well. Put a few apple trees, a couple peach trees. We even had a plum tree or two uh, and uh, a cherry tree. And it didn't really go very well. I'm a little too far north for the peach trees. My, my elevation's a little too high than just down the road in the valley. But what proves that I planted the apple trees in the front yard is the fruit that I see in the summer. That I can forget what I planted where, but in the summertime, I know what's in the front yard is not a peach tree. I didn't put those there and then get them mixed up because it's an apple hanging on it. The fruit proves. False miracles are there. False uh, wonders are there. And their purpose is always to deceive. Here we have devils going throughout the world to gather people to come to Israel, deceiving them into thinking that there will be wealth and riches, that they can control Jerusalem, that they can be the ones to to rule the world, that Antichrist is not good enough, let's rise up and rebel and we can have power. It's a deceptive spirit. And in a sense, though from devils, these false miracles are also a judgment from God. They're a judgment from God upon those who have already chosen their own ways, despite the witness of God and His Word. Turn to Isaiah 66. Isaiah is an amazing book, 66 chapters. It's a microcosm of the entire Bible, compacted into one. 
Isaiah 66, God says to Israel, in terms of their religion, some of which would involve miraculous things that would happen between the Testaments, quote-unquote, in history. God says, He that kills an ox is as if he had slew a man. Verse 3. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation or, a, or a, um, an offering as if he offered swines or pig's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways. So they're bringing these offerings to the temple and the prophet says, you may as well be pouring pig's blood on the altar. You may as well be sacrificing a human because you've already chosen your ways. You're going through the motions, but you've already dissembled in your heart. Those that have already dissembled in their heart can go through the motions and then false miracles and false signs and wonders that harden their heart are therefore a judgment from God, a strong delusion. We have incident, several incidences in the Scripture where a lying spirit was sent to deceive. God always provides a way of escape through the witness of His Word, but nobody looks at that. Israel had chosen their own ways. Then verse 4, I will also choose their delusions. So because they chose their own ways, God said He would choose their delusions. One, a delusion is a false miracle that leads people astray. God chooses the delusions and will bring their fears upon them because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. False miracles and false wonders are a judgment from God upon those who did not answer when He called. See this in the New Testament. Lots of people claiming Christ today. When the rapture happens, Paul says that those who knew the gospel, those who were called and did not listen, God will send them a strong delusion to believe a lie. And they'll all be damned because they receive not the truth. There are people, I've talked to people that grew up in church that know the truth, don't want to follow the Lord now. Well, I'll know it's true when the rapture happens and then I'll believe. No, you won't. No, you won't. The tribulation saints are those that have never really heard the gospel. But God chooses delusion for those who did not listen when He called. It's a judgment. But then verse 5, we need to be the opposite of that. God says, I will choose your delusions. You will fail. Your fears will come upon you. You didn't listen to me. But hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at His word. The, one God, the ones God speaks to and protects from these deceptions are those that tremble before His Word. Hear the Word of the Lord, you that tremble at His Word, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for My name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but He shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. In this particular context, this is Israel. All of religious Israel that thought they were following God may as well have been dumping pig's blood on the altar because they weren't following God. And the small remnant that remained, Isaiah said it was a very small remnant, were persecuted and mocked by their fellow countrymen. God said, that's fine. They're delude. They'll be, I'll send them delusion. You tremble at my word one day. Those that cursed you in my name are going to see that you were right. Same thing in Jesus' day. Very few, small Jewish remnant. But when the, when the end comes, 
the Caiaphases and the Annases and the, and the, and the leaders, the religious leaders are going to see that those cursed Jews who believed in Jesus, who aren't Jewish anymore, were right all, the, all along. Because they trembled and believed the Word of God. We need to be like that. Those who tremble at His Word. That's how we protect ourselves from being deceived. But in these days, in Revelation, the Word of God has been cast into the street. The church, the witness of the church is gone. The Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is taken out of the way. And but for some Jewish preachers and a few tribulation saints, many of who are martyred, the witness is gone. And the world is deceived. It says here that these are the spirits of devils working miracles. Devils work miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Deceiving spirits going to gather kings unto battle is nothing new. This happened in the uh, days of the kings of Israel and Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 18 the righteous king Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom and the wicked king Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel made an alliance, an alliance that should never have happened. The righteous king was rebuked for loving those that hate the Lord. You know, there's a lot in the church today that need to be asked the same question that the prophet asked King Jehoshaphat. Should you love those that hate the Lord? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. No. We're not called to love those that hate the Lord. Never says that in the Scripture. That means we'd be the opposite of God because God hates those that hate Him. It says it in Psalm 5.5, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. God says He hates those that love violence. He has a perfect hatred. You know, all these talking heads on television, CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, God hates those people that lie on the TV screen every day. I didn't say it. God's Word says it. He hates a lying tongue. Now understand, God's hatred is very different than ours. Ours is emotional. Ours is rooted in selfishness and anger. God's is rooted in righteousness. Just like God's love is very different from man-made love, His hatred is very different from man-made hatred. So don't think God's hatred is like ours and that His hatred of the wicked justifies us taking matters into our own hands. It never does. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But God has a righteous hatred. And the only thing that can deliver men from that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save you to God. He's the only one that can save you from God. But, these kings came together, made an alliance, and King Ahab was intent on going out to battle the king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And he brought the prophets in and the false prophets came in and said, you know, God told me, you know, one of them made horns of iron and said, you're going to defeat this king and you're going to conquer. And Jehoshaphat said, is, he knew these were false prophets. He knew these were people just tickling the ears and telling them what they want to hear. And he said, well, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that can tell us something? And Ahab said, well, there's this one guy, Micaiah, but he always prophesies negative things. He always speaks negative things. I don't want to even hear what he has to say. Well, no, we need to bring the prophet of the Lord in and let him hear. So they brought Micaiah in there and said, all right, tell me what, what we need to do. He said, go. Go and prosper. Go to battle and prosper. And then Ahab, who didn't want to hear anything negative, got angry and said, I know you're lying to me because you always speak negative. Now tell me the truth. And then the prophet says what 
God reveals to him a scene that was in heaven. Second Chronicles. I really like cross-referencing Scripture. I think we've been in every book of the Bible at least three times in this study. Used to make it a goal to get there once, but multiple times. Verse 18, 2 Chronicles 18. Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon His throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on His right and on His left. And the Lord said, Who shall entice Ahab king of Israel that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one spake, saying after this manner, and another saying after that manner. Then there came out a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. The Lord said, Thou shalt entice him, and thou shalt also prevail. Go out and do even so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil against thee. So here we have a lying spirit allowed to go forth and deceive. And the prophet of God even warned the people that that's what was happening. But they'd already chosen their own ways. The two kings go out to battle. Ahab convinces Jehoshaphat to wear his kingly garments, but he dresses up like an average guy thinking he'll escape. And Sure enough, an arrow gets him and he's dead. Fulfilling prophecies that had already been made about his house because of his idolatry. But a lying spirit. This is what we see in Revelation on a worldwide scale. Allowed by God to judge those who have already chosen their own ways. That king didn't want to hear God's Word. He wanted somebody to tell him what what he wanted to hear. And that's most of the quote-unquote prophecy and teaching we have in the church today. To tell you what you want to hear. Tickling itching ears. God allows that upon those who aren't interested in the truth. We have to ask ourselves, do we really want the truth? If we do, when we study the Scriptures, we won't go looking for something to back us up. We'll go looking for what God wants to tell us. A real easy way to expose where somebody is spiritually when they claim to be a Christian is just to ask a simple question. You don't have to be all, you know, give them a doctrinal test and question everything. There are genuine believers out here. We are not the true, only true church. We're not the only true believers. That's foolishness to think so. God's got a remnant. But we meet a lot of people that say they're Christians. Some people are genuine and we have joy when we see fruit in their conversation. But a real easy question to ask is, what's the Lord been teaching you lately in His Word? How would we answer that question? Because that's the fruit of those who seek the truth, not those who've already chosen their own way. If somebody were to ask you tomorrow... What's God been teaching you lately in His Word? Would you be guilty as charged of being a true Christian through your answer? Something worth thinking about. It's amazing the kind of interesting answers you get to that. Unto the kings of the earth and the whole world. Not just the east. The river Euphrates is dried up to make way for the kings of the east, but now these spirits go to gather from all directions. The north, the south, and the west, there was no geographic borders. You have seaports. You can cross the Sinai from Africa into Israel. You can come from the south in Asia from the north down the old King's Way and the way of the sea. The only major geographical barrier is to the east. The river's dried up and now the devils 
entice them to come from all directions. All directions to one point on the map. This scene of the kings of the whole world being gathered to the battle of the great day of God Almighty, we see this scene laid out for us in the Psalms. Very clear. This exact scene that John's talking about can be found in the second Psalm. Those of you that... I like reading the Psalms. They're great things to bridge to the Gospel with Israelis. You know, Jewish people have a superstition about the Psalms. I've seen trinkets. Some of them are very interesting. Witness to an Israeli in a mall once he gave me... They call the Psalms the Tehillim. Okay? And they have a superstition whereby they, they have these trinkets containing the Tehillim. This was a little keychain, a little golden keychain with a little paper book inside about the size of a quarter. And printed on that book was all 150 psalms, microscopic. And they carried around like a good luck charm. Oh, I've got this Tehillim right here. Or I've seen it in lockets, real tiny, in a necklace. And they treat the psalms as if it has some spiritual power by just carrying it around their neck or on a keychain, and yet so few have any clue what the Psalms even say. So few have any clue. We kind of see the same thing with people that go around parading themselves as King James Bible believers. I'm a King James Bible believer. I don't trust modern versions. I read the King James. I'm not going to go into battle with a rusty old scabbard when I can carry a double-edged broadsword, 66 caliber. But some of these people that go around talking about the King James this, the King James that, scarcely ever crack it open to see what it says. All they want to do is talk about the King James as if that is all there is. But, but don't even see what it has to say. It is the Word of God. It's been perfectly preserved. And I stand on my King James Bible in English. And that's the official Bible we distribute and give out to the Israelis when we give out a bilingual Hebrew-English copy. Man, there's more than just sitting around touting, I read this version. What version do you read? It's about what it says and doing what it says. It's the same thing. All this superstition in a lot of different areas in the Christian life is not unlike what we see with the Jewish people. But unless we do and live and read what the Psalms say, you can carry it around in your, on your neck all day long. Plenty of Christians have Bibles on their shelves or even read their Bibles every day. But they've already chosen their ways. And so, it doesn't do them any good. They may as well be dumping pig's blood on God's altar. But the second Psalm shows this scene. One of the great messianic psalms. I've been going through the psalms and trying to zoom out and see how they relate to one another. And I'm trying to teach myself some more Hebrew vocabulary. And so what I've been doing is going through each psalm and trying to sum it up in one Hebrew word. That way I learn a Hebrew vocab word. And it's a key word that when I say it in my mind, it reminds me of what's in that psalm and how to go to it when I need an answer. When I look at the first psalm, that first psalm gives us two ways to go. The way of the righteous or the way of the ungodly. What's a way to sum it up? Ways. And we say in English, in Hebrew, derek. Derechim. The word for road or way is the, like the name derek. Derek. Derechim. We get to Psalm 2. You want to sum it up? We have this scene from Revelation 16, but we can sum up Psalm 2 with one word. It's one word in Hebrew, not in English. Habin. The son. It's all about the Son, the Son of God. 
And apart from Him, you have no hope. Here in Psalm 2, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That word anointed there in Hebrew is where we get the word Messiah. Messiah or Mashiach or Christ. We get Christ from the Greek word Christos. It means Messiah. Most Israelis we talk to have no clue that Christ was not Jesus' last name. It means Messiah. It comes from the Hebrew word that means anointed. Messiah means God's anointed. So we have the kings of the earth gathered against the Lord, against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want God to rule over us. We don't want Messiah to rule over us. The kings of the earth are gathered to stop it. Where does that happen? At Armageddon. Exactly what we're talking about in Revelation. And how does God respond? How does God respond? He laughs. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. If you want to know what derision means, it means confusion, but it's a confusion that produces exactly what happened to the Midianites when 300 of Gideon's men started banging on pots. They went nuts, they got scared to death, and they killed each other. That's what happens. And that's exactly what happens here at Armageddon. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. God laughs. God laughs when the the kings of this earth actually think they can overthrow His rule. And God also laughs at those who think they can extinguish the witness of the righteous. God laughs at the wicked who persecute the righteous because God sees their end is coming. The Psalms talk about that in chapter 37. So there's two times God laughs when the people of this earth think they can overthrow Him and when they think they can stamp out the witness of His saints. God laughs at that. Then shall He speak to them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. This is what we see in Revelation 14. The Lamb with 144,000 on Mount Zion amidst the rubble. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten me, thee. So God has chosen His Messiah. Nothing can change that. And His Messiah will sit on the throne in Zion. Doesn't matter what the kings of the earth say or do. And then God says to His anointed, the Son, Ask of me and I'll give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Some say the great missionary passage. Ask of God and He'll give us the nations. Nothing could be farther taken out of context. What does the Messiah ask for the nations to do? Exactly what He's going to do here in Revelation 16. And we see it in 19 in more detail. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So because this scene at Armageddon has been decreed by God, and because it will happen to the kings of the earth. What should the kings of this world today, how should, what should their attitude be today? Verse 10, Be wise now therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. What response should that evoke in our world leaders today because of what's coming? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
That's the best advice that could be given to our president. In light of what's going to happen to the nations and the UN and even this country, the best thing he could do is serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then what else? Kiss the Son. Put your trust in Messiah. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So just like we have this scene from Revelation 16 described coupled with a warning to those in the here and now, we have the same thing in chapter 16. We have a scene being described and then we're going to look. In verse 15, there's a warning to those of us living here and now. The battle of the great day of God Almighty is what's described here in Psalm 2. And it centers on the Son, the true Son of God. Not not meek and mild Jesus hanging on a cross in a weakened state, but the King of glory that John sees there in chapter 1, in chapter 19, Zechariah 14. The battle of the great day of God Almighty. So, if these workers, these spirits of devils are bringing men over the Euphrates River and gathering them to battle to the great day of God Almighty, it means that they're gathering for Him. They may not know it, but these devils are gathering for God to accomplish His purposes. These kings gather against Israel and against each other over Israel for God's purpose that they might be destroyed. They gather against each other over Israel and then they turn when they realize that the sign of the Son of Man is in the heavens. They turn and unite to try and overthrow Him. And God laughs and it's fruitless. I'm sure these devil spirits entice these kings with promises of wealth and power. And I'll let you rule over the kingdoms of this earth just like Jesus tempted. I mean, Jesus was tempted of the devil. And they come just as it was prophesied. They gather for Him, for God. Isaiah 10.5, the Assyrian, the Antichrist, the rod of my anger, God says. Isaiah 27 describes this scene as well, focusing on what the results thereof. In Isaiah 27, we see that God... In the day of the Lord, He's going to punish Leviathan, that piercing serpent. That's the dragon of Revelation 12. He's going to punish him with his sore and great sword. And then it says in verse 2, that this scene is a vineyard of red wine. Remember the vintage that God treads out the wine press? It's all the same picture. A vintage of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment. I will do exactly what I'm uh, going to do. And then he talks about how through this gathering of kings, this scene at Armageddon, verse 9, by this therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. As these nations gather to overthrow Israel and fight over Israel, Israel is forced to acknowledge their transgression and call upon Jesus the Messiah to rescue them. And by this, their sin is purged. So this gathering is to overthrow the wicked, but it's also to purge Israel of her sin and to redeem her. 
And then it says in verse 12, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and you shall be gathered one by one, all you children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. Remember, this highway of invasion is being prepared as a highway of return. So all of this accomplishes the return of Israel to its land, the purging of Israel's sin, and the setting up of the Messianic kingdom. So what these kings that are deceived don't realize is they're gathering to overthrow God's anointed, but in essence, they come to pave the way for Him. How often in history have the wicked thought they were either doing God's service and they weren't, or trying to fight God and realize they were actually helping Him? They were actually doing His will. Happens time and time and time again in history. This scene we see is described in the Scriptures as the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Revelation 16, 14. Back in chapter 14, we saw it described as the great winepress of the wrath of God. Here in Isaiah 27, a a vineyard of red wine. We'll see later in chapter 19 of Revelation, it's called the supper of of the great God, where the birds feast on the carcasses of these kings and their armies. Joel calls it multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. A great and horrible day where men and powers that be are gathered by devils to try and overthrow God, but they're gathered by Him, in essence, to overthrow them. A horrible day. Let's keep reading in Revelation. So this has been described, the battle of the great day of God Almighty, and then we have a pause, an intermission of sorts. Just like we saw there in Psalm 2. Be wise, a pause, an intermission. This is the scene of the future. Be wise, therefore, now you kings of today. This is what you should do because of what will happen. Same thing here. John pauses, an intermission. Behold, Jesus is speaking here, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. So here the narrative stops, and there's a reminder given to those that are reading this book now. Because of what's coming, we need a reminder. When Christ's judgment comes, it comes as a thief. When he comes for his church, it's as a thief in the night. And when he comes at uh, Armageddon, it's as a thief. A thief takes people off guard. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. What's being described here will come suddenly. Therefore, we, our attitude ought to be affected today. Watch and keep. That's what we're told to do in light of this certain future history. Watch and keep. It's funny because that's the exact same advice that as a martial arts instructor I give to my students. Watch, be aware, and keep or guard what you know and what you have. That involves practicing. I often say practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. You can practice wrong all day long and then you've got a habit you've got to break. But watch and keep is the same advice or instruction I give to my students. Who is this written to? 
Blessed is he that watcheth. Is this written to the kings of this passage? No. Is it written to the tribulation saints? No. It's written to the same people the third verse of the book is written to. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. This is written to you. Verse 15 is written to you. It was written to every single Christian and saint throughout the church age at all times. Blessed is he that watches and keeps. Same that are told, blessed are those that read and keep the, the, the prophecies of this book and by default, the Word of God in its entirety. Whoever it may be, to walk naked and to expose one's shame is to be caught off guard. We need to watch and keep so we're not caught off guard like the world. So we're not caught off guard by the rapture. We're not caught off guard by the fall of this country. We're not caught off guard by the rise of demonic spirits and the spirit of Antichrist to deceive us. We won't be caught off guard with Armageddon because we'll be in the army with the one that's coming with victory. We'll be riding with him. We won't be caught off guard then, but we can be caught off guard now and rendered ineffective in our walk and our ministry. I know those who I've labored with who were caught off guard. Caught off guard. They wallowed around a little too much in their discouragement and their depression. They spent a little too much time alone. Slept a little bit too late. Too many days in a row and they were caught off guard. And now they're useless in terms of ministry. Useless. And God raises up and replaces them. We need to watch and keep so we're not taken off guard. Just like Nineveh. Nineveh was taken off guard. The prophet Nahum, Jonah spoke. The people of that generation repented, but then their children and their grandchildren forgot. Nahum wrote a prophecy. And God even said, I'm against you and I'm going to jack your skirts up over your face and I'm going to show your filth and your shame, your nakedness to the nation. And when the Babylonians came in 612 and sacked Nineveh and the empire was finished, they were taken off guard. You know, a lot of us, kind of our, our culture here in America, we like to give cards to people. and I like it when people write in the cards. Um, you know, when somebody sends me a card and they just sign their name, it's kind of like, you know, you, you, you should have saved a stamp. But, you know, a lot of times we'll write a little something special. We want people to know how much we appreciate them. And, and uh, you know, we'll often sign our name and write a little scripture reference there. And how many of us actually go and look it up? I mean, let's be honest. A lot of times we do... I've gone to where I'll write the Scripture out sometimes because I don't know if the person's going to look it up or not. But there's a great test you can do to see if people really look up the Scripture reference you put in their cards. Just do this one time. Talking about Nineveh being taken off guard. The prophet Nahum, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. This is a great reference to write in a birthday card or an anniversary card or something to see if the person really goes and looks up the Scriptures. If they look them up, you'll know because you'll hear back. Next time you fill out a card, put Nahum 3, 5, and 6. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame, and I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a gazing stock. Now, if people go and actually look up those Bible verses, you'll know about it. So it's a great test. I've always liked that verse. I've never done it, I don't think. 
I probably I would not do that to my mother and my mother-in-law. I would not do that to my father and my father-in-law. I might do that to my brother one day. We'll see. If you do it to me, I'll recognize it. You got to pick a better one that I wouldn't know about cuz but just like Nineveh, just like Israel, we talked about Jeremiah 13. God said that I'm going to pull your skirts up over your face. Show the world your nakedness. Completely caught, caught off guard. What church does uh, Jesus warn against in Revelation? That if they don't repent, their nakedness is going to be shown to the nations. What church was that of the seven churches? If you don't repent, your nakedness, you think you're clothed and rich and you think you have all these things, but you're poor, blind, and naked. And if you don't repent, your nakedness will be seen by all. What church was that? The rights of the people is what it means. The rights of the people. Exactly what we see happening today. What church period are we in? Laodicea. Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the nations being caught off guard. (coughs) If we don't watch and keep, we'll be caught off guard just like Nineveh, just like Israel, just like the Laodicean church we see all around us, just like the nations at the coming of Christ. Satan's goal is always to destroy. Satan's goal is if he raises up people that are loyal to him, he raises them up for himself with the purpose of ultimately destroying them. When you look at the political landscape today and you see radical Muslims joining hands with radical feminists and homosexuals, there's only one explanation for that. Because the worldview of the Muslim and the worldview of the homosexual is so diametrically opposite in terms of, quote-unquote, what should and shouldn't be allowed in society, that there's only one explanation for why they would unite. It's because the same devils that possess the Muslim are the ones that possess the homo. And they gather them together just like they gather the armies to destroy them. No devil ever works for the benefit of a man. He uses a man for his own benefit. He knows his day is coming, so Satan's duty is to destroy as many people as he can. So he deceives sodomites into thinking Muslims are their friends and vice versa. And they'll end up destroying each other. The ones they accuse of hating them really are the only ones that love them because we have the truth and don't desire to wipe them out. We don't desire to harm them. We desire God's vengeance, but we desire for them to know the truth and therefore we tell them and they think we hate us. And they believe the people that want to destroy him. First Peter tells us to, to watch because the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What he does, he does to devour. He doesn't do anything for the benefit of a man. He does it to devour. Because his day is coming and he wants to take as many with him as he can. Therefore, we need to watch and keep There are unclean spirits even today who lead men to destruction. The believer cannot be possessed by an unclean spirit because the true believer has the Holy Spirit living in him. But he can sure be oppressed. He can sure be tempted as Jesus was in the wilderness. And unfortunately, many believers quench the Spirit and grieve the Holy Spirit and therefore give in to these devils. And in being 
and, and in uh, being oppressed, we can be led astray. We can be led into thinking that we're doing right when the Scriptures are so clear that we're wrong. Men without the Holy Spirit are led to destruction all the time. I've heard time after time in places like Nepal, stories, and even the villages, villagers who don't have a college education and would be considered dumb in an, in, in, on the American social scale, have enough sense to know that there is a spiritual, that there are wicked spirits. And they, they, that's why they don't go in the woods at night. That's why they don't, you know, there's warnings about riding buses at night in Nepal. I mean, lots of stories about, you know, sp- evil spirits crossing the road and causing the driver to slam on the brakes and the whole bus goes off the cliff and kills everybody inside. What demons do when they manifest themselves are to deceive and to destroy. There's lots of people here in America that go missing with no logical explanation. Because they've been led away unto destruction. We need to watch and keep. We have great power against the evil spirits. The Bible says all we've got to do is resist the devil and he will flee from us. The lost don't have that power. Resist. We need to watch and keep and not be ignorant of his devices. Satan's goal is to destroy. We see this here in Revelation 16 with the battle of the great day of God Almighty. What should our attitude be? That's, we have no part in that other than to be the armies of heaven that come with Him on the white horse. We don't live in fear of that. But what should our attitude be? Back in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 20, we see it in Isaiah 39 as well. These emissaries came to King Hezekiah. He was a righteous king. They came from Babylon. And Babylon was a little known power. And... Uh, The Assyrians were still dominant. Egypt still had a powerful empire. But these emissaries came from this far country, Babylon. And they came to visit Hezekiah. And Hezekiah showed them everything. He showed them the temple. He showed them the treasures. He basically showed them everything he had, all his riches. And then those emissaries left. And the prophet Isaiah came and said, who were those men? And Hezekiah told him. And then the prophet prophesied, look, you came in here and you just showed them everything. One of these days, that same country you just bragged to is going to come in here and take everything you showed them. And that's where the prophet prophesied the Babylonian captivity. (laughs) And what was Hezekiah's attitude? His attitude was, ah, so, so be it. At least it won't happen in my days. At least there'll be peace in my days. That was his attitude. And I don't think that should be our attitude. We see that from Christians today. Even you know that's why a lot of these so-called uh, 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 replacement theologians and people that are into all the post-millennialism, a lot of that's reactionary theology. They look at a bunch of Christians who talk about the rapture and have the attitude that Hezekiah had. Well, I'm just going to be raptured. I could care less what happens now. I'm just going to go about my business. The rapture's coming, and they react to that attitude and come up with these false doctrines and try to say, well, the doctrine must be wrong because the attitude of the people claiming it is wrong. That's foolishness as well. But our attitude shouldn't be like, oh, that's fine. So be it. It's not going to happen in my days. That's not the attitude we should have. And a lot of Christians have that when it comes to the book of Revelation. This verse here is not talking. It's talking to us. Watch and keep. That's not passive. That's active. Our attitude ought to be exactly what Paul says when he talks about the rapture. When he explains it in 1 Thessalonians 4, and then he gets into 1 Thessalonians 5, 
and talks about the sudden destruction that will follow out of peace and safety, that will follow the rapture. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others to say, ah, that's great. At least it won't happen in my day. That's sleeping spiritually. But let us watch and be sober. Watch and be sober is the exact same command in Revelation 16, watch and keep. Let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, doing what? Putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to abstain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. So to watch and to keep is explained in a little more detail here. Watch and be sober. Comfort each other. Edify each other. Keep our garments. Remember it says keep our garments there in Revelation. What garments? Well, here Paul talks about the breastplate of faith and love. The helmet of salvation. We go over to Ephesians. He speaks about the breastplate of righteousness. The helmet of salvation. Having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's the garments we need to keep. Right there in Revelation. Blessed uh, is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Breastplate of faith. The shield of... I mean the breastplate of uh, righteousness. The helmet of salvation. Our feet prepared to preach the gospel. What else? Having our loins girt about with truth. To keep your garments is to cling to your Bible, my friend. To have that word of truth guarding your loins, the center of your body, the physical center of your body, ought to be girt about with truth. What is truth? John 17, 17. Jesus said, Thy word is truth. He also said, I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. The living word, the written word, one and the same. We've talked about that before. A lot of the churches today are like Pilate. They don't keep their... Garments. Pilate said, what is truth? That was his question to Jesus. What is truth? That's a lot of the churches today. Not keeping their garments. We need to be like Jesus. Thy word is truth. And it needs to be girt about the center of our body spiritually. It needs to be our center. This is the opposite of that. Remember that linen girdle we talked about a couple weeks ago? Had to do with the Euphrates. Josiah, I mean, uh, uh, Jeremiah was told to put on that underwear, that nice clean underwear. And then he was to take it to the river Euphrates and ball it up and throw it in a rock and then go get it later and it was all mired, marred. Having our loins girt about with truth is the opposite. It's the opposite of that picture. President Obama once described people like us as those that cling to our guns and our Bibles. Amen. Amen. To watch and keep our garments is to cling to our guns so we can protect our families, so we can protect the innocent, and to cling to our Bibles so we can know the truth. This is the essence of chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Be aware and be in the Word. If I wanted to make a super modern translation of the New Testament... 
I could say exactly what Obama said. We could, we could translate that verse, cling to your guns and your Bibles. Clinging to our guns is a picture of awareness. Clinging to our Bibles is a picture of keeping our garments, having our loins girt about with truth. Jesus says in Luke 12, that verses 39 and 40, He says, Let's see here, I'm on the wrong chapter. 39 and 40. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not suffered his house to be broken through. We don't have to suffer our children to be taken. We don't have to suffer our freedoms to be removed. We don't have to suffer these things if we'll watch and be ready when the thief comes and stand up and speak out. The reason we're where we're at as a nation today is because those that foresaw these things years ago, nobody listened to them. You know, I could get into history. We like to judge people of other generations very critically. We look at slavery and the Civil War. We look at women's rights and when blacks got the right to vote. And when All of this stuff. We look back so judgmental and we think we're so much more moral and so much smarter and we take complex issues and try to make them simple. And we stand in judgment of people who were far more righteous than us. And there were things that went into decisions that were made in complex issues where people foresaw the very things we see today and urged our government and urged the leaders not to be hasty and nobody listened. There was a time in history when there was a big bunch of outcry about giving women the right to vote. Praise God people have a right to vote. Before that, there was an outcry of why should people that don't own property have a right to vote? Here we own property, we pay taxes, and we're actually investing in this country, and you want to give the same vote to someone who doesn't own anything. They're just squatting here. So there were these debates. Well, if we give women the right to vote, then the focus will be off the family unit, and it'll be on the individual, and as a result, the family will break down. I mean, I'm not passing judgment. It's a good thing that we have the right, especially Christian women, to vote. But there were people in that day that foresaw what we saw marching in the streets yesterday. They saw that years and years and years before it happened and warned. And nobody listened. And now we got filth in the streets. Making Jezebel look like a saintly woman, some of them yesterday. I'm, it's not an issue about whether women should vote or whether slavery should have ended, but it, we better be careful about judging complex issues. We need to look in the mirror because there's been plenty of people that looked at complex issues like that and said, we've got to find a solution, but how do we do it? Because they saw these things in the future. It's not about the family anymore. It's not about the family union, unit. Why in the world... Would you ever have a situation in a Christian home where a husband and a wife didn't vote the exact same in an election? If you have that situation, you've got a major spiritual problem in your family. If there's a Christian family in this country where the husband and the wife both claim to be Christians, one of them voted one way and the other voted another way, you've got a major problem. But it's all about freedom, rights of the people. 
rights of the people. People in history that we would condemn saw these things and warned about it. There were people who knew and argued that slavery needed to end in this country. The government of the Confederate States of America was the first issued the first constitution in American history that specifically outlawed the fugitive slave trade. The U.S. Constitution didn't make it illegal to trade slaves, to sell them and to purchase them. That didn't become illegal until after the Civil War with the amendment that barred slavery. But the Confederate government made it illegal. But yet we're supposed to think everybody in the South hated blacks and wanted to enslave people. But yet, they made it illegal to slave tra- trade slaves. No Confederate ship ever sailed on the seas trading and bringing slaves from Africa. But plenty of them did with the Stars and Stripes. It's a complex issue. There were people in the southern government that wanted to free the slaves and encouraged the government to do it before the North did. But they realized it was a complex issue when you turn people out who have room and board and you turn them out and they have nothing. What's going to happen? They foresaw what we see today with what's been done to the black population in this country. They foresaw it. The black population is enslaved in many ways by people who claim to be for them. People generations ago saw it and their their attitude was we need to tread carefully. But nobody treads carefully anymore. We need to be careful about those, about being casting judgment on those more righteous than us of other generations. And that's what people do today. And that's the fruit of those who are not awake and sober. Quick to open the mouth, but not to ponder. The only thing men ever learn from history is that men never learn from history. Any good thing we have in America today is by God's grace. You know, I would say that God must have really, really loved and had a special place in His heart for the African population in a way that hadn't been seen with other peoples. You know, what God did is He pulled people sovereignly out of that dark continent and brought them across the ocean to America. It was a tough time. It was a trying time. It was trial and tribulation. But out of that, many heard the gospel and believed. And the gospel took root so that countless that were once in the spiritual darkness of Africa are now in the light of the gospel and have been used by God to reach others for the gospel. That's a pretty powerful thing that God doesn't do for all populations in history. There are people that have never heard the gospel, people that were never pulled out of it. But God saw something there. He intended to use the population in Africa, the black population, for a purpose. And it's sad that many today don't even see that. Don't even care. Don't even, don't even sit back and think, you know, if my ancestors hadn't been bought here as slaves, where would I be today? Instead, they want to blame people living today who had nothing to do with that for what somebody did generations ago. That's what proceeds from ingratitude. That's what proceeds from an attitude that says, I don't want God like those people in Psalm 2. They can't even thank God for His work in history. You know, just like with Joseph, what God, man meant for evil, God used for good and saved an entire nation. 
what man meant for evil with the slave trade, God used for good and chose people out of tribes and tongues that otherwise never would have heard. The same can be said going back far enough in our ancestry where there was slavery. Who knows? Our ancestors came here fleeing persecution. Am I going to sit around and be angry about the persecution in Europe that drove my ancestors here and blame them? No, I'm thankful because as a result, the gospel came to my family. But people don't think that way anymore because they're led astray. Their loins are not girt about with truth. They do not watch and keep their garments. Instead, they're naked spiritually and their shame is exposed. The Bible gives us multiple warnings about the deception of the devil and those his, his minions. We're given great power. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist him? Jesus shows us in the wilderness. The devil tempting him. It is written. You resist the devil with the word of God. It is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written, worship God and Him only. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In the book of Jude, we see another picture of resisting the devil. Michael the archangel was in a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. Remember, God buried Moses. God has a purpose for Moses in the future. That's why He stood with Elijah and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Satan had a debate, a conflict. And it says in Jude that Michael didn't bring a railing accusation against him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. You know, I used to see, there used to be a t-shirt that was popular among Christian youth groups. It said, Satan is a poo-poo head on it. <laughs> That's just foolish. Eric and I talked about this when we were in Nepal. We hiked up this mountain. We wanted to hike, and I've been up there before, and there's an ancient Hindu idol up there to a devil. It's very small, and it's made out of a stone. And it's indestructible. I mean, it's just... I won't go into why I know that, but, uh, you know, it's just a wicked idol. Well, we went up there, and we were just sitting there talking, and, you know, Eric made a joke about, you know, trying to tear it down or something. You know, he had no intention to really do it. And I just said, actually, Eric, you know, I used to would think like that, laugh about it, but in reality... Why would we want to provoke the devil? Why would we want to provoke him by coming up here and messing with his idols? Let him be. I said, better, better than taking a crowbar and bashing this idol into a million pieces, just stick a copy of God's, let's stick a book of John there. That has more power. Why would we walk by a hornet's nest and take a rock and throw it right into it and stand there? Why would we purposely run our lawnmower over a yellow jacket's nest? Why would we provoke the devil? You know, I used to not think like that until Brother Bishnu said a word or two, a rebuke to me not long ago, had me rethinking. Why provoke the devil? Why bring a railing accusation against him? There's no need. The Lord rebuke you. Martin Luther, we sung that hymn last week. A mighty fortress is our God. Talks about the evil one. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. One word. The name of Jesus. We'll send him running. Why provoke him? Why try to fight with him? We don't have to. We can resist him. So, we have this warning here. This is to us. We're not part of this battle other than 
riding with Christ in the armies of heaven on those white horses. We don't have to lift a finger though. Christ does it all. But we ride and that will be a threatening sight from the heavens. But we're told to watch and keep our garments now because of the certainty of these future events. And then we get to verse 16. We have the river dried up so the kings of the east might come. We see these unclean spirits like frogs go out and gather the nations. But then we get to verse 16. And He gathered them together in a place, into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Who's the He? It tells us in verse 14 that the spirits of devils do the gathering. But then we get down to the end of verse 14, the great day of God Almighty. Then we have this intermission. The he goes back to the nearest pronoun antecedent, God Almighty. The devils gather, but behind the scenes, this little pronoun bespeaks a loud truth. They gather, but ultimately it's he who gathers. God is gathering. The devils are just marionettes on strings. Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, are marionettes that can only do what God allows them to do. Just like Satan was only allowed to touch Job's body, he was not allowed to kill him. It is God who gathers. That's why Antichrist is called the rod of my anger, God says. Revelation 6, remember the first seal, the the white horse rider, the imitator, the Antichrist who comes in peace. He has a bow with no arrow. It says a crown was given unto him. He didn't take it, it was given to him by God for a reason. The uh, Revelation 9, the star that falls from heaven that opens up hell and all the demons come out. To him was given the key of the bottomless pit. He didn't take it. It was given to him by one greater. Joel chapter 2, that same demonic army, that locust army that we talk about as the fifth uh, fifth trumpet judgment, that army is called His army in Joel chapter 2, God's army. Uh, We saw in 2 Chronicles 18 that lying spirit did God's will. Here it says, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. This same scene is in Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. Remember we've read, he gathered them. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 3. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So God gathers them against Jerusalem so that he can go forth and destroy them. He is the one that gathers. Remember we talked about the first four seals. We often hear the four horsemen of the apocalypse as if the riders are the one that bring the judgment. The Bible never talks about the horsemen. It tells us there are people riding on those horses. But the seal is the horse itself that comes. It's the four horses. And they're sent from God as a judgment. 
carrying riders that ultimately fulfill His will. God gathers, and it says He gathered them together into a place. Now we're talking about a future event here, but John is writing in the original language here, the Greek language in the past tense. This is what we call the futuristic past. It's so certain that it's as if it already happened. That's why it's written that way. You see in the Hebrew where um, commands are given about what we should and should not do in the future tense. It's so important that we should do it as if it's all as if it will be written about us. Same thing here. It may as well be past. It may as well be in history because it's so certain. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. This word Armageddon is an English transliteration of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word. Who knows the difference between a translation and a transliteration? A translation is where we actually translate the word into our language. For example, I mentioned the word in Hebrew, derech. It means road. We translated it into road. That word is actually transliterated into English when we see the name Derek. Derek. It's transliteration. In Nepali, the Nepali word, the, the word tourist can be translated into Nepali paryatak, but they don't use that word anymore. They use a transliteration. The word for tourist is tourist. And when I spell it in Nepali with Nepali alphabet, that's a transliteration. That's what we see here. The Greek word is Armageddon. It's right there in the Greek Bible, the original language. And we changed that into English letters and said Armageddon is a transliteration. But it comes from the Hebrew word Har-Megiddo. Or Har-Megiddon is the Hebrew word. That's been transliterated into Greek and into English. And Har-Megiddo means Hill or mount. Har is a hill or a mountain. Megiddo, of the crowded. The hill of the crowds. It's like a hill or a place where the crowds are just stuffed in there. That's what it means. When you go to this location of that ancient archaeological site in Israel, it actually shows in the Hebrew on the sign, Har Megiddo. Armageddon. It's right there on the sign. He gathered them into a place. Here's what we see. We see the fifth vile judgment. It's the gathering or the positioning. The putting of the pieces into the proper place on the chessboard. You know, the coming or the gathering to Armageddon, it's a campaign. It's a military campaign that involves various battles. And it culminates here. We see this in Daniel 11. We see this in other places. This is a campaign. Just like when you look at the Civil War, we think about Gettysburg. Or we think about the Battle of Antietam. And we never stop to consider that to get to that place in that particular battle, there was a whole campaign that got there. In fact, there's, a, there's, a, there's an entire Antietam campaign. And lots of cool little battle sites you can go to in Maryland and Northern Virginia that most people don't know about because they just think of a battle as a battle in and of itself when it's actually a campaign. That's what you have here with the fifth vial. 
A campaign all its own. A campaign that leads to a gathering in a place. Then you have the seventh vial. The seventh vial is a great earthquake. A great earthquake. Babylon, the world system in chapter 18 and chapter 19, a sentence is pronounced against it. Just like a prosecutor lays out the charges in his closing argument and the judge renders the sentence. That's what chapters 17 and 18 are. The, the, the uh, sentence against the world system, both its religious element, chapter 17, and its commercial element. The judgment is pronounced and the sentence is rendered and then you get to chapter 19. It's actually the battle of Armageddon. Here we just have the gathering. The sixth vial. The seventh vial is the battle. When Christ Himself steps out of heaven. When Israel wakes up and calls for their Messiah. When Christ splits the Mount of Olives. When the multitudes have spilled over outside Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley. So it's a campaign. You can look at it like the fifth vial is the campaign that brings the armies to the battlefield. Or the sixth vial and then the seventh vial. The culmination of the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet is the actual stepping of Christ through the heavens. It's what's called the vintage in that parenthesis we saw in chapter 14 that contrasted the harvest, the gathering of the saints versus the gathering of the wicked. In 19, it's he that treads the winepress of God that comes down. In Revelation 14, we had the vintage. Revelation 16 through 19, we have the how. The fact. Now we have the specifics. This is specifically how it happens. So now with the gathering, we've got the campaign that culminates. I don't know how long I'm going to get into this, but I at least want to hand out something. I made some copies for you. Geographically speaking, the location of Megiddo or it's called a hill in the Scriptures. It's also called a valley. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting place. Megiddo is a very strategic location. It is a great historical crossroads going back to the very beginning of time. You know, even going back to Abraham coming down into the land of Canaan, he would have known of this crossroads. We don't know exactly which route Abraham came into Canaan. Some say he came down the coastal route and crossed uh, at um, where Israel and Lebanon meet there at the coast. Some say he came via um, uh, Shechem, the way of the patriarchs. Some say, think he came down from Damascus and would have come through uh, uh, this Megiddo into the plain of Sharon. We don't really know, but he would have known of this crossroads. Megiddo, this crossroads has seen more military battles than any other single place on earth throughout history. I made these maps here. I only made 10 copies each so you can share them. I've got kind of a satellite image uh, relief map of the general area where Megiddo is found. And it's just kind of neat to look at. You can find this in Israel today. I've been to all of these places. Just past this run. There's only 10 copies, so maybe one per family. Or... And then I also made a printout here this is from the, the Roman times, and it's, it's hard to see, but this shows some of the Roman roads that were in existence in the days of Christ. You have the red roads were the major Roman highways. The concept of mile markers that we have on our interstates today, we think we're so technologically advanced, it's the Romans that laid the roads and put the mile markers. 
they did that, and we've just built upon that. But there were roads that people walked and took chariots and stuff, paved roads. There's remnants of some of those roads. You can find them in Israel today. But the, you had the major king's highway that went up through Jordan and went up toward Damascus. You had the way of the sea that went into Europe on the coast. Then you had lots of roads going around Israel. So I'll pass that around as well. And I'll just make a comment or two, uh, and we'll end here today, and we'll look more in depth at uh, the place of Armageddon next week. But if you look at this map here, this is northern Israel. What you basically have around here, this is the Sea of Galilee. Up here you have the Golan Heights. You have the Jordan River Valley. You have the Galilee. Okay, And then here you have Samaria. Okay, If you see this dotted line here, this is the border of the West Bank. This is Lebanon. And this is the disputed areas or border areas of Syria. Okay? If you look at this map, there is a plain area. You can see a plain, a valley here that curves up toward the sea. And if you look down, there's a little, it looks like a, a crack, like almost like a river valley. Right there at the edge of the hills, right here, is the tail of Megiddo. It's the mouth of Megiddo. Right here this crossroads. Okay? This mountain right here is Mount Carmel. What happened on top of Mount Carmel? Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Mount Carmel is a big massive that basically dead ends into the sea and it rises up and then it comes down. We've actually camped up here and on the north of Carmel is the Bay of Haifa and the old crusader city of Acho or Acre and on the south side is the plain of Sharon. So, the coastal route, you've got Mount Carmel in the way, and so what would happen is a lot of times they would go around and come here, or you could actually stay on the seashore and pass. But this is Mount Carmel, and basically Megiddo is at the bottom of that. Okay? So you're right here. Um, several places in the Scriptures, uh, you see this valley area. This is called the Jezreel Valley right here. And then when the Jezreel Valley curves around to Mount Carmel, there's a Y. And the Y, the, the, the vortex of the Y is, Mount, is Megiddo. You can go to the north. They call this the Valley of Megiddo and it goes up the coast. Or you can go to the southwest through a, just a little bit of a rolling area and it pours out onto the plain of Sharon. The plain of Sharon is the Israeli coastal plain. You can go south into the land of the Philistines or Gaza and then you can go right into Egypt on relatively flat ground. And so Megiddo is right here at this Y that happens at the base of Mount Carmel. So you have the plain of Sharon here, the valley of Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley. Here you have the Jordan River which forms the valley of Jehoshaphat. Or actually the Jordan River Valley goes down and the valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley that goes up to Jerusalem, the way from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Um, some different things on here... Uh, you have today in this Jezreel Valley, there's a town called Afula. Afula is a, is a crossroads. It's where Highway 71, Highway 60, Highway 65, and then 66 and 70 kind of all come together there that allow you to go out at the different valleys on this crossroad. So it's, yeah, there's highways there that all converge right there in the Jezreel Valley. Um, here you have the 
uh, Sea of Galilee and going northwest out of the Sea of Galilee, the road to Damascus. This is the road Paul would have taken. And it gets up into some volcanic uplands that kind of opens up and it's relatively flat. The old King's Highway in Romans times went up through the Golan Heights on to Damascus. The old way of the sea came down, went around Mount Carmel, and went down the, the plains of Sharon, and there were roads that circled around through Megiddo. If you look at this Roman map, um, Megiddo is right above the L in Galilee. Um, actually, yeah, pretty much right above the L in Galilee is where Megiddo is. And you can see it was right there on a Roman crossroads. The Via Maris would go around Mount Carmel and rejoin the sea. And then you'd have a major Roman road that would cut over to the south side of the Sea of Galilee and then go up to Damascus. Okay, This area up toward Damascus, I've camped out in there, and that's where Paul would have been walking uh, when he met the Lord. Um, We've walked around in this area. I've been to Megiddo. I've got some interesting pictures and stuff I may show you. Uh, But what makes the Jezreel Valley important in terms of Israel geographically is it was the dividing line between Galilee and Samaria. So when you see Samaria, Samaria is basically the West Bank that's above Jerusalem. Judea is part of the West Bank that's south of Jerusalem involving Hebron and other towns like that, Bethlehem. And north of Samaria, you have the Jezreel Valley. And then on the other side of the Jezreel Valley is the Galilee, or what they call it. So it was the dividing line between Galilee and what was called Samaria in the days of Christ. Sometimes the Jezreel Valley is called the Plain of Esdraelon. Um, it's a word that's derived from the Hebrew Jezreel. And the Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Jezreel, it's all kind of the same thing. Technically, the northern branch of the Y is the Valley of Megiddo, and the foundation of the Y is the Jezreel Valley, and then you've got the, you've got the Mount of Megiddo right there at the vortex. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a, a geographic picture of why this would be significant. Um, in Roman times, like I said, you had major highways. The coastal route, the Via Maris, it, it would lead to Egypt. It would lead to Europe. It would lead to all countless seaports along the Mediterranean. You had the King's Highway. It was the way to go to Africa, a way to go to Asia, and it was also another way to get to Europe. Uh, the King's Highway actually connected the Nile River in Egypt with the Euphrates River in ancient Assyria. So by way of uh, these old Roman roads that would connect to each other through Jezreel, you could get to Asia, Africa, Europe, seaports, get anywhere in the world. It can be accessed from all continents without traversing another continent. By land, you can get to Africa, Asia, even Europe. By sea, you can get to North America, South America, Australia, Europe, and even Antarctica. Just come into the Mediterranean, the port of Haifa, and you just walk down the Megiddo Valley and you're right there. It truly is a crossroads. Every continent, you can get there from every continent without traversing another continent. Interesting place. It's a crossroads of the Gentile or for the Gentile world powers. 
When you saw the rise of Egypt, Egypt would march up in through the land of Canaan to, to attack the Canaanites or to later on do battle with, uh, with, with Assyria and then later with Babylon. They would march right through these valleys. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians came down through this crossroads. Even the Greeks and the Romans used these crossroads to come down and invade. The revived Roman Empire under Antichrist will use these crossroads to move his capital. It's truly significant. I'm going to stop here today. Next week I want to talk about Megiddo a little more in depth. It's a place where you see three great Old Testament victories that teach us a lot in terms of scriptural or spiritual principle. It's also a site of three great Old Testament disasters. Megiddo was important, very important in World War I. There was a battle there. And that battle was instrumental in what led to the establishment of the British Mandate and the modern state of Israel. And then we're going to look at the two phases of this Armageddon, and then we're going to get into the seventh vial the following week. So, I have an assignment for you. I want to see who can come up with the answer. What were the three great Old Testament victories that happened in the Valley of Jezreel or in the Valley of Megiddo? And what were the three great Old Testament disasters that happened there? When you know a little bit about the geography of the Holy Land, it sheds some real light on the biblical narratives. Some real light. You know, when you go and you walk through that valley and you see Mount Gilboa and Endor and these other places mentioned in the Old Testament, and then you think back on the stories of where people went here and went here, it really exposes foolishness. Or it really exposes faithfulness. When Abraham, when Lot was captured and he pursued those wicked Canaanite kings to rescue Lot, he gathered his men together it said he pursued them all the way to Dan. Now Abraham was down in the south of Israel in Beersheba. Dan, my friends, is all the way right up here at the very tip top of the modern state of Israel. Abraham didn't go a couple miles down the road. He pursued over mountains and up river valleys a long way before he caught up with those people. That was faithfulness. You going to answer it? I've never actually seen somebody answer a phone in church when people call. I think Nepalis probably do that. I don't know. Have y'all ever seen somebody actually answer it in the middle of church? I haven't either. <laughs> I haven't either. But see if you can find, some of you, just a little trivia. What were the three great Old Testament victories there? And the three great disasters. Okay, um, in one of the disasters in particular, you got to know a little bit of geography to pick it out because it doesn't say explicitly. But I'll let that be an assignment. Does anybody have any questions? I hope these things are interesting to you. They're not there randomly. They point us back to other scriptures, which can in turn teach us things as we endeavor to watch and keep our garments. Not like Hezekiah. Oh, that's going to be. In a, we're not even going to be here. I'm not going to worry about it. No, we need to watch and be sober. All right, let's pray. I actually finished. Uh, I felt like I preached longer than I normally do, and yet it's not even, it's about 15 till 1. So, hey. Okay, good. 
All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for so much that you've taught us today. Father, help us to be watchful and sober. Help us to know what it is to truly watch and keep our garments. Not to be deceived by false teaching and false spirits. Not not to have a um, an attitude of uh, indifference to the things of the future that we think, ah, oh, we're not going to be here, so let's just have a... Let's just twiddle our thumbs. No, we've been called to be active, Lord. The devil's out to destroy as many people as he can. Lord, we ought to be those that preach to as many as we can so as many as possible can be saved because we know it's not your will that any man should perish but that all should come to repentance. But God, you're not a beggar. Your purposes will be accomplished. Men are given a means of escape and may we be those like Joshua who says, "For me, choose you this day you will serve us. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, Please uh, be with those who are not here. Bring them back to us safely. We pray for this upcoming week that we will be a light in a dark place and that uh, we pray for our nation. And sometimes I think America is in a sane asylum run by the inmates. But you still have a remnant. We pray for our president that he would stand firm for righteousness despite uh, the comedy show that's going on up there now and the government shutdown. Maybe the best thing for us is to shut down this uh, swamp that's way out of control in Washington, D.C. So we pray your will would be done. But Lord, we don't labor and pray as those who have no hope. We know the end of the matter. And uh, one day all the cities of the world will fall and then you, out of that rubble, will come a kingdom that shall never end. And we are thankful that you would allow us to be a part of that. Bless the food we're going to eat, Lord. Give it, may it give us strength and nourishment. And uh, bless our afternoons together with our families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.